This March just got a lot sweeter for the Big East. Well, not in terms of the coaching carousel and a lot of bitterness. The complete opposite of sweetness. But on the court, things got a lot sweeter for the Big East. As now the women have two Sweet 16 teams coming out of the Big East. To match, not to match, but to complement the three on the men's side. I'll explain how that came to be here on this episode of the Igloo. Day 21 of the March Marathon. I still can't believe we're here now. Day 21. I mean, 10 days left. So, in NCAA tournament action... Villanova, Florida Gulf Coast. Starting starting fast was going to be a key for Villanova in this game. And they did that and then some. A 26-11 margin at the end of the first quarter. And they started with the first eight points of the ball game. No, they were making shots. I don't think... a Normally with Villanova, you know, they like, when they're hot, they're hitting their threes. That's when you know they're really feeling themselves. But, they only had two threes in the first quarter. Brooke uh, Brooke Mullen and Lucy Olsen went back-to-back. Maddie Segrist was... Was solid in the first half with a dozen points, but FGCU got it down to six heading into the locker room at 39 to 33. Maddie only had 12, but Lucy Olsen had 12, and that was a bit of a difference maker. And then the third quarter, they really put the clamps down on the Eagles while also reestablishing their offensive dominance with 26 points in the third quarter to match their first quarter total. And Villanova, at that point, they had raced out to a a pretty comfortable lead at 65-49. to Although FGCU, they got some points at the end of the quarter. I think they ended the quarter what? It was 8-6 in the final minute and a half or so. Maddie Antonucci knocked down a three to cut down to 16. But Villanova put the clamps down defensively in the fourth quarter. Just eight points allowed. I mean, listen. They only had 11 in the fourth, but those seven, the eight points, excuse me, allowed in the fourth, a huge difference maker as they got some big shots. Bella Runyon with a big three. And the defense was phenomenal to hold a high-powered FGCU team to just 57 points and punch their ticket to the Sweet 16, not only with Hall of Famer Jay Wright in attendance, but with their longtime and legendary head coach Harry Peretta also in attendance. Villanova heading to the Sweet 16 again for the first time in exactly two decades, 76-57. Maddie Segrist, 19 in the second half alone, and finished with 31 points. 
13 of 24 shooting. And that is now her 36th consecutive game with 20 or more. That's just absolutely bewildering. And she is very close now to setting the single season NCAA Division I scoring record. I think she has either matched or exceeded the record that Kelsey Plum set back when she was at Washington and before she won a title with the Las Vegas Aces. And I think the record for a single season also held by Plum. And she just added 31 in this game. Lucy Olsen, I said that Villanova was going to need a, a big-time game from at least one other player other than Segrist. Whether that be two players with, with solid nights of at least double figures or even one player... going off for a 20-piece or more, Lucy Olsen was the one that provided that with 23 points, 10 boards, and 7 assists. Just 3 assists shy of a triple-double. 9 of 14 shooting, 3 of 5 from long range. The rest of the team, eh, just 2 of 17 from deep. But the 9 of 14, incredibly efficient night for the sophomore. Brooke Mullen added 7 points, 4 boards, and 5 assists, 3 of 8 from the floor, 1 of 5 from long range. That lone 3-point make came in the first quarter. Added 6 points, 6 rebounds from Christina Dalsey. Only played 12 minutes due to foul trouble, but blocked 3 shots over the course of the game. 4 blocks for Segrist, who also added 4 steals and 0 turnovers. Bella Runyon with five off the bench, seven boards, four assists, two of nine shooting, and one of six from long range. Kaylin Oriel and Zanai Jones each with two points. Maddie Burke only played seven minutes, didn't score. Which, uh, that's not good, but even if Maddie Burke can't go, they have a solid backup at the three. In Bella Runyon. And they have a even if she's got to move up into the starting lineup, at least you got Caitlin Oriel as help too. Villanova inside the arc was 27 of 45. That's an even 60%. 5 of 22 from long range ain't great. But they forced 14 turnovers by FGCU. 7 of 21 only from behind the arc. And they hold them to inside the arc just 14 of 38 overall for the game, 35.6%. Leading the way for the Eagles only with 11 points, Shea Carter. And they play a five-guard lineup. Carter fouled out and is only 6 feet tall. 5 of 12 shooting. Six rebounds for Carter. Eliza Winston, 5'8". 
Four of nine shooting, two of five from long range, ten points. Seven points from Teixeira Morehouse. Five three. Two of ten shooting, one of five behind the arc. Four boards, four, re- four assists. Two points from Sophia Styles. Five nine. All from the free throw line. And then Emma List. Scoreless in 16 minutes. And she's 5'10". So they only have one six-footer in their entire lineup. Off the bench, I mean, they got 27 total points. Nine each from Uju Ezudu and Kiara Adams. Ezudu, three of seven from the floor, one of one from behind the arc, nine rebounds as well. And she's the only forward listed that played in this game. I mean, like they really love playing on the perimeter, and they live and die by the three ball, and they die by it. Adams, four of eight from the floor, one of one from behind the arc. Add in six points from Maddie Antonucci, two of three from the floor, knocked down her only three points after the game, that three at the end of the third quarter. And then you add in a three from Kayla Webb. So Villanova dominated on the glass, too. 42-30, to 30, 13 offensive rebounds compared to FGCU's 9. And they also forced 14 turnovers. What a win for Villanova. And now with... They kind of lucked out, in a way. Because Indiana, the one seed in their region, got upset by ninth-seeded Miami. And by the way, this is the first time since 1998, exactly 25 years, that not one but two number one seeds were sent packing in the first weekend of tournament competition. Stanford got knocked out on Sunday, and now last night Miami takes out Indiana, so the number four and number two overall seeds respectively are out. So now Villanova in Greenville will take on Miami on Friday. Now, the other Big East team in action, UConn. And by the way, what a way, if this is it for Maddie Segrist, I'll be shocked if she ends up using her final year of eligibility, the COVID year that she has. So if this is it, what a way for the greatest player in Villanova basketball history, men's or women's, to go out. In terms of going out at at the fin. So she's already attained immortal status. But... She can kick that up a notch. Well, okay, maybe not. She's, you know, legendary status. Icon status. I say she's at icon status right now. A final four trip would make her immortal. And that path to the final four just got a little bit easier with Indiana getting knocked out. Now the only obstacles remaining, they beat Miami and they get either LSU or Utah. More on that when, you know, the actual Sweet 16 comes by, but 
the more this tournament unfolds and the better Villanova looks with each game, the more I vehemently believe that Villanova can actually do it and get to the Final Four. So the other Big East team, they've had their set sights set on the Final Four for a while. And they're trying to go back for the 15th year in a row. That is, of course, the UConn Huskies. Taking on longtime rival Baylor, the Bears, they couldn't miss from behind the arc in the first quarter, down 20, as UConn trailed 24 to 18. Then they locked down defensively and got the offense going as well. They doubled up the Bears in the second, 22 to 11, and it was capped off as Baylor chipped it, chipped away. You know, UConn started the second quarter tremendously. I mean, they they scored the first nine points of the second quarter. And then UConn built the lead up to... They built the lead up to eight at 37-29. Baylor then scored six unanswered to cut it down to two. But Nika Mule hitting a runner from long range. A runner from long range. To beat the first half buzzer. That was a huge momentum shift. As UConn got the momentum back, they kind of lost towards the end of the half. So they go into the half with a five-point lead. And the defense got even more dominant. Just 23 points allowed in the second half as UConn themselves scored 37. AZ Fudd in the third quarter alone, 16 points. She really woke up and UConn needed her to wake up. And in their final game in Gamble this season and the final game to be played on the old alumni court at Gamble. Going to see a new floor next season. The UConn women take down Baylor 77-58. to Tremendous game for AZ. 22 points, 9 of 22 shooting, 3 of 12 from behind the arc, but she started really slow and then got hot and started cooking in the third quarter. Aaliyah Edwards, a really solid all-around game despite foul trouble. 24 minutes, 19 points. Four boards. And then you add 11 from Dorka Juhas. Five of eight from the floor. One of three from long range. Seven boards and three assists. How about Caroline Ducharme off the bench? 19 minutes, 10 points on four of six shooting. Two of four behind the arc. Six boards, three assists. Lou Lopez Senechal. Seven points, two of four from the floor. Knocked down her only three-point attempt of the game. Nika Mule, her only field goal make was that three-pointer to beat the first half buzzer. And only had four points on the game, four boards, ten assists. I mean, some of the dimes she had were just absolutely pretty. But the difference maker, really, with her play, Aubrey Griffin, just four points in 20 minutes on two of five shooting, but... 12 rebounds, 6 on each 
each of the offensive and defensive glass. And Gino's quote after the game, I mean, it, it just downright hilarious. For such a, you know, a low speaker in terms of, like, he doesn't really inflect a lot on the mic. He, he's, he talks very quietly. But I thought it was so funny in that voice, in that low voice of his. You know, with how often she's on the bike, she finished third in the Tour de France. And she's on the bike so much that, like, I had to send carrier pigeons to, you know, to get her into the game because the bike's that far away. But, hey, she came off the bike, came off the bench, and made a huge difference by grabbing 12 rebounds, which was a game high. The Huskies, really efficient. Inside the arc, they were 24 of 39. 8 of 23 from behind the arc is pretty good. I mean, Baylor, some of the shots they were making from three were just ridiculous. They were 12 of 29. Inside the arc, again, UConn protected that paint so well, holding them just to, to just 9 of 32. That's well under 30% inside the arc. And doesn't help that Baylor was 4 of 8 from the charity stripe. UConn was 5 of 9. 15 turnovers, they got to patch that up. But other than that, they looked very good. As for Baylor, 15 to lead the way for Jamie Asbury. 5 of 12 from the floor, 4 of 8 behind the arc. 14 for Jaden Owens. 5 of 10 shooting and 4 of 6 from long range. Add in a dozen from Bella Fauntleroy. No relation to Kennedy, who, by the way, just a little side note, she's in the transfer portal while uh, Georgetown searches for a new head coach. Uh Anyways, Fauntleroy, 4 of 11 from the floor, 2 of 3 behind the arc. So those three scored 41 of their 58. Six off the bench from Dariana Littlepage-Bugs. That's a great name. 3 of 5 from the floor, 6 rebounds. 5 points for Sarah Andrews, who was a hideous 2 of 13 shooting and 1 of 8 from long range. And then... Three each from Caitlin Bickle, who is just one of six shooting, eight boards, four assists. And they got a three from Jonna Van Geitenbeek. So Baylor knocked out in the round of 32 for the second year in a row, and UConn hasn't missed a Sweet 16. And I laugh at this because it's just it's just absurd. It's absurdly impressive. They haven't missed a Sweet 16 in 30 years. 30! I mean, it's comical. It's ridiculous. But that's just a testament to the kind of aura and the, just how incredible of a program UConn is. On a negative note, though, we shift gears to the WNIT. Seton Hall hosting Syracuse. And we learned the hard way why Syracuse realistically should have been the one hosting Seton Hall instead. Especially considering, you know, Syracuse had the better record. But unfortunately, you know, the Dome was unavailable because it's just really a lot of work to 
change from a basketball game, taking the court out to get it ready for lacrosse the next day. And Syracuse put the boots to Seton Hall. It was only 9-7 to after one. Low-scoring game, but then Seton Hall got outscored 26-8. to Daisha Fair had 15 points in the first half. Seton Hall had 15 points as a team in the first half. I mean, it just looked like Syracuse is just unstoppable. And by that point, Seton Hall going down 20. They needed a monumental comeback. I mean, they got it down to 11 heading into the fourth as the score was 51 to 40. And again, Seton Hall had 25 in the third. They had 15 in in the first half total. But then Syracuse, they woke up and pulled away for a 72-54 win, ending Seton Hall's season. Again, this is the WNIT runner-up a year ago, and they get bounced in the round of 32 by, I mean, let's be real, a superior Syracuse team. Daisha Fair with 24 points, 9 of 17 shooting, 4 of 11 from long range, 19 for Georgia Woolley, 8 of 17 shooting, 1 of 8 from behind the arc ain't great, but... 8 of 9 from 2. 4 boards and 5 assists for the Australian. How about 10 off the bench in 30 minutes from Tisha Hyman? 4 of 10 shooting. And then you add 9 points and 10 boards from Dariana Lewis. 6 points for Kyra Wood to go with 6 rebounds. And 4 points from Elena Rice. Syracuse, so they didn't shoot great from three. Five of 23. That's 21.7%. Inside the arc, they were 24 of 44, and they out-rebounded Seton Hall 46 to 39. 19 offensive rebounds compared to Seton Hall's 14. And Syracuse, they kind of allowed Seton Hall back into the game. They went 9 of 19 from the charity stripe. But Seton Hall fouled more, and they didn't get to the line as often. Just 2 of 4. Meanwhile, the Pirates just 2 of 19 behind the arc, and they turned it over 19 times. And as a team, just 38.5% from the floor. Even 50% inside the arc, but again, 2 for 19, you're going to lose every single time when you do that. Especially against a team like Syracuse. So LPL, most likely her final college game, 23 points and 6 assists, 11 of 22 shooting. 0 of 3 behind the arc. 8 points for Azana Baines. 8 rebounds on 4 of 8 shooting. 6 points for Sydney Cooks. I mean, her eligibility, I believe, is all done. Just 3 of 11 shooting, though. Off the bench, 5 for Shea Hagens in 16 minutes. 2 of 4 shooting and 1 of 2 from long range. Maya Bembry with 4 points in 27 minutes. They got a a three, one of their only two three-point makes from Victoria Keenan, the other one being from Hagens. Keenan just one of seven on the night. Case Satterfield with three points in seven minutes off the bench, and then two points, eight rebounds from Jayla Jordan in 14 minutes, one of five shooting, 0 of four behind the arc. So Syracuse out of the WNIC Sweet 16. Seton Hall, their season ends 
at 19 and 15. So a really disappointing end of the season for Seton Hall. I mean, they started off so well in conference play, especially at, I think they won like six of their first seven conference games and then just really fell apart. And you look at the end of the season, they lost two in a row to end the regular season. Lost four of their final six. And overall, trying to do the math here. So they started 6-1 and one in conference. And then they lost nine of their next 13. So really, they lost 11 of their final 17 games. Just a really tough way for Tony Bazell and his team to go out. And especially in Walsh losing in that way where you can't make a shot from three. And you turn it over nearly 20 times and Syracuse is up 20 on you at the half. Yeah, it's a tough way to go out as the Orange dominate. In South Orange. So. I was really deliberating. How I wanted to end today's episode. I mean I could go a lot of different ways. Specifically with. The recent news of obviously Ed Cooley to Georgetown. And now you add in. Well I think now I got my answer. Rick Pitino to St. John's. I mean, we knew this was going to happen. I mean, the writing was on the wall. And now now we get it. Pitino back in the Big East, now with his third Big East school. He was at Providence. Took him to the Final Four in 87. And... Then he returned to the Big East with Louisville throughout their entire Big East tenure from 2005 to 2013. And now he doesn't have to leave um, his residence where, you know, he's been living since, you know, taking the job at Iona, where he had a very solid three-year run with the Gales, taking them to two NCAA tournaments and obviously winning multiple Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference titles, as well as multiple regular season titles in that conference. And the press conference to introduce him was today at the world's most famous arena. And I'll be honest with you, I loved everything that he had to say. Which included the way we want to, quote, the way we want to build this program up we want to have every Biggie's game at Madison Square Garden. Which is, that's the kind of optimism and drive you want to hear from your head coach. To If you want to be big time, you know, well, he, the big thing is, I know he's talking a big game, but this is Rick Pitino we're talking about. One of the most successful coaches in the history of college basketball. Arguably the best In terms of his historical resume, the best active coach in all of college basketball. 
And yes, that exceeds Jim Beheim if he was still coaching. Yeah, I went there. And Rick Pitino is more than capable of building St. John's back up to that level where they can play in Madison Square Garden for every single Big East game, all 10 of them, and not just the ones that are guaranteed big draws like UConn, Georgetown, Villanova, and then, you know, for the last few years, Seton Hall and Providence. But hell, even getting big, making a big deal where the demand's going to be so much to see St. John's. That Karnasek is not going to be big enough. That they got to play teams like Butler and DePaul in the garden. I I love hearing that. If, I'm not even a St. John's fan, and I love to hear that because the hire alone raises the profile of St. John's that much. Maybe not the level of making them a top 25 team immediately, like Jeff Goodman said. And like, I appreciate the vigor from him, but and this is not a knock on Jeff because Jeff is one of the more well, most well-known people in college basketball as someone who covers the sport. All I'm saying is just reel it back a little bit. Patino's a hell of a coach. And now he's got even more resources at St. John's. That's going to help him even more. But top 25 without doing a thing yet, pump the brakes just a little bit. I want to see how he how the roster will come together for him. Which, you know, he talked about the kind of roster that he wants to have. And, you know, he's like, unfortunately, you know, we're going to, you know, some guys are going to have to go. But he definitely sung his praises for Joel Soriano. Calling him his captain. who And Soriano was there today. So that must be a sign Soriano sticking around. Which... That, not only did they need to get a guy like Rick Pitino and needed to get him specifically, but they really needed Soriano back, and now they have him. And that's huge for the Johnnies. Absolutely huge. And it was also really huge also that 98-year-old Louis Carnesecca was in attendance for this. Pretty damn awesome. Still kicking it. The, you know, the living legend, the... You know, other than Jim Beheim and Bill Raftery, I okay, I misspoke. So in terms of the original Biggies coaches, one of the few still alive. And I that is super awesome. And in fact he's ninety eight. Like that makes it even more awesome. He's he's really close to getting his own smuckers jar uh for on the Today Show with, you know, the uh, Centurions Club. Is that? No, Centenarian. Centurion is like, I don't even know. Centenarian. He's almost a centenarian, which is just absolutely bewildering. I know I'm going off course here, but the thing is with St. John's and Patino now, not only does this raise the profile of St. John's dramatically, This is going to raise the profile of the entire Big East drastically. 
Because in college basketball, even though the Sweet 16 is going to be happening soon, the Big East is is the most talked about conference in the country right now by a wide margin. And not just with this news. It's because of the fact that you have three teams from that league in the Sweet 16 still. With UConn, Xavier, and Creighton. So the Big East is winning on and off the court. Slam dunk coaching hires, even though one of them is extremely controversial. And listen, I love Ed Cooley, but even I got to admit, he could not have handled this move to a rival in your in their own in 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 the Big East, no less. He couldn't have handled that any worse. As much as I love Ed, listen, you're going to hear me. I'm going to be as I'm going to you know call it like I see it. As much as I love Ed Cooley. In a constructive way, I will just say he did not handle that well whatsoever. In the same token, though, I think Providence fans, I just hope you hear this. Like, I understand your hatred, Fred, now that he has betrayed you. I completely understand that. But just dial it back a little bit because, like, I don't know. Some of the epithets I've seen on Twitter have just been, you know, just downright nasty, hateful. Like, I could handle, you know, like, you know, some of the things that were said, but listen, there there were certain lines that were crossed from what I've seen that just made it not okay for me anymore. So for Providence fans, listen, I understand your anger. A lot of it's completely valid, but... I don't know. Some again, some of the epithets I've seen, and I feel like with every fan base, you see the worst kinds of people. That doesn't mean that the entire fan base is like that. I mean, there are already T-shirts out of you know Ed Cooley's face on the Providence logo, but it says liar instead of friar. Like it's really gone there already. And we're not even 48 hours removed. Listen, that's just how I see it. I'm not trying to say Ed Cooley was in the right to go to Georgetown. Because was he... Moving to Georgetown's not great coming from another Big East school. The way in which he handled it was wrong too. But, like I said, can you really blame him with the offer that he was getting from Georgetown? I wouldn't. But that's just me. So, again, I'm not trying to pick any sides here. Because Georgetown fans, I can understand why they're really happy about this. Because they're getting a hell of a coach. And I can understand why Providence fans hate Ed Cooley now. 
for the way in which he conducted his business and not just that, the fact that he left the place that he calls home, a hometown boy from Providence, to build that program back up to the level he got him to, only to leave them high and dry. Especially with some of the details that we saw regarding when when he signed off on his house. The coincidence of the only win over the last three weeks of the season. Or four weeks, I can't even remember. The only win in that span. Being over Georgetown. Two losses to UConn. Two losses at home to Xavier and then a blowout loss to Seton Hall. The day after that, you know, he signed off. You know, again, I don't blame Providence fans because, you know, all the words that he said, they seem extremely empty. And seeing, you know, him, you know, saying his thank yous on Twitter in a thread, uh, yeah, I can completely understand. And they do feel kind of empty. Even as someone who doesn't root for Providence, just reading that, they did, those words did feel empty. All those tweets felt empty. And, again, I don't blame Providence fans one bit for latching on to Providence, latching on to Ed Cooley because he's one of their own. And one of their own just turned his back on them, left the family, especially with the whole us-we-together family friars. And for Providence fans... I think I, I'm doing a good job in terms of speaking for y'all. That fourth word, and now that fifth word, really that whole catchphrase, is pretty much null and void and never had any substance to it. I'm not listen, I'm not saying it. I'm just I'm just saying that that's how the how these Providence fans feel. Just wanted to make that clear. Again, this is a very tough situation. And again, like I said, Georgetown Providence at the amp is going to be an absolute war zone. And I don't really condone the idea of, you know, make the meanest, nastiest signs that you could possibly make and just make sure that Ed Cooley knows that we're disrespecting him, that we hate his guts. From an unbiased perspective, listen. I can, I would at least step, take a step back to appreciate everything they did over the span of 12 years, which included their first ever Big East regular season title last year. I know it has an asterisk to it, but it still counts in the record books the same way. A Big East tournament title in 2014, their first in 20 years to get their first NCAA tournament appearance in 10 years at the time. So many tournament appearances. Once they got going in the new Big East and a Sweet 16 last year, their first in a quarter century. But the way in which he did it, the way in which he left that legacy may have been tarnished forever. And I truly believe those Providence fans and anyone at large who believes that. And I think that's where I'm going to have to leave it at. Thanks for tuning in to the Igloo once again. The marathon, only 10 days left in it. So 
hang on tight. And good news, if you, you're getting sick of the sick and tired of the daily episodes, it's going to end soon. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you all tomorrow right here on the Igloo.